Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 46, All That and He's Humble Too, where we will be looking at Chapter 98 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of relational parody. Oh my goodness, that name. Oh my goodness, you did a great job on picking the name of the episode. Dripping with sarcasm. Yeah. Any hoozles. Quick explanation of the pod. Each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens, figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. And then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Somewhere in there, we're also going to do a Phrenemos, which still isn't written down on my explanation. And this time around, we actually have an interesting fact, courtesy of one of our absolutely wonderful friends on Discord. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, I don't know that this needs to be said any longer, but I'm going to say it anyway. Spoilers. Spoilers for the Kingkiller Chronicle and almost certainly spoilers for a lot of other media <laughs> that we're not necessarily going to avoid talking about. We're nerds. Also a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. Also, for those of you who do not listen to the end of this, we do have a Patreon. And every solstice and equinox, we release a Patreon-exclusive pod for those that like the Sandman comics. And we will be reading and recording that next episode soon to be released in June. That one is going to be the collected volume number six, I believe, of the Sandman. And we're really looking forward to it. And if you're interested, there is a 14-day free trial of that specific Patreon tier available where you can go listen to all of our past episodes of that pod, as well as some of our breakdowns of things like The Princess and Mr. Whiffle. We'd love it if you check those out. I think you will enjoy it, but I am also very biased. Much like the last episode, we will be mentioning things about sexual assault because, quite honestly, pretty much all of the discussion around Florian is both being assaulted, at least in the beginning, before he takes back his agency and decides to continue. But even then, this whole episode seems very manipulative and very ooky to me. On with the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we're talking about Chapter 98, The Lay of Felurian, and we've really only got two characters here, just Quoth and Felurian going back and forth. And one of the things that you have to remember through all of this is Quoth is a really unreliable narrator. Oh my goodness. Like, I'm just sitting here like, okay, yeah, we get it. You think you're great <laughs> at everything. Especially this. You think you're smarter than everyone. You think that you are smarter than Florian, who is infinity years old. 
You think that you are one of the world's greatest songwrites. You also think that you're one of the world's greatest lovers. Oh boy, here's the thing. I think that it's not that Quoth is this great lover, it's that Felurian has low standards. I mean, the pickings have been slim, so yeah, I don't think that she really has super high standards as to what she considers great lovemaking. I mean, Quoth does think that he's good at everything the first time he tries it. Uh, we're going to get into a little bit of my thoughts on, <laughs> um, yeah, as we go along. There's also, just to point it out here, the fact that both is like, okay, so to ensure that I understand what great lovemaking is to receive, I need to go receive a whole bunch more. For research. <laughs> For research purposes. Like, assuming also, though, that Florian doesn't need to <laughs> also test out a few potential other options. I don't know. I just, that's the short end of everything. This isn't a very long chapter, but let's go ahead and bit by bit it. So we pick up in the aftermath of when Quoth was able to temporarily bind Florian and... Not in the kinky way. Not in the kinky way. That would be fun. I don't know that Quoth has fun. Quoth is not a fun person. He thinks he is, but he isn't. He's insufferable, and we all know it. Anyway. So, they've had their conflict, they've gotten mad at each other, and now they're in that, well, all my emotional energy has been drained. Let's just kind of regain our footing, and I said things that I don't mean to have said, and you said things that you don't mean to have said, and we were angry, and we were hot-headed, and we were emotional, and now we kind of have to deal with the fact that neither of us are proud of our actions or our words. Ugh. Can I just take a, a moment here to talk a little bit about some logistics? So, throughout all of this, Quoth and Felurian are naked. <laughs> Thing the first. Second... Apparently, throughout all of this, Quoth still has his loot with him. Like, where has he kept it all this time? He's just able to pull out his loot here, sitting naked in bed with Felurian. Like, where was it? Where was your loot, Quoth? Where did you keep it? Did you hold on to it all the way down the hill? Right? As you were ripping your clothes off? Right? I don't want to think about this too hard. I'm just saying there is a certain amount of hand-waving about his inventory that he's playing a trick here. And that may be our first clue that this is all bullshit. Okay, not only that, does he have his knapsack or whatever it is that he's carrying the coins in? Because you know that if he's not, because I can't remember, but if he still has all the stuff he squirreled away with him in the Fey, okay. But if he doesn't, Dedan is going to drink and piss that all away. Almost certainly. Yeah, so 
what we really have is a situation where his inventory is always available. It doesn't necessarily match actual physical storage. It's video game logic. Right. It's your pack that can carry 300 pounds in it in Skyrim. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how that's actually spaced in terms of volume. Like, yeah, I don't really buy this as anything approaching reality. So are you assuming that he got bonked on the head pretty hard and he's just kind of splayed out in a swamp somewhere? Actually, no. That Well, I mean, so that's one explanation. The other explanation is that none of this actually happened at all. That he never had an encounter with Felurian. That he never left the party or anything like this. Because remember, he's just telling this to Chronicler, who's not in a position to verify this. I mean, who would he verify it with? Theoretically, he could verify with Martin and Daydan and Hespa, theoretically, if he could track them down. But he certainly won't be able to do that in a timely fashion. It would probably take him two to three years to track them down. So in the meantime, this is the story that's being told uncontested. I mean, maybe ask Bast if he's heard this from a different source from the Fae? Yeah, but Bast is a known liar. So is Quoth. Yeah. So in what right mind would you think that Bast is going to do anything other than corroborate the story? I don't know. I think Bast is kind of neutral chaotic. I said that wrong. I don't care. Yeah, he's neutral chaotic, but that only makes any corroboration that he provides one way or the other even more untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is also a case where I think sometimes the lies that people tell are more revealing than anything else because they tell what sort of thing would they lie about. So, yeah, Quoth has his little humble brag about, oh, Valurian can't believe that I'm a virgin. And, oh, if given the right amount of time, I can write one of the best songs ever written. For the record, being a virgin, not ever having had, I assume they only care about penetrative sex, doesn't matter. Like, it's not the only goal to strive for in life. And when it happens, let it happen. Follow your heart on how you'd like it to. But honestly, it's just the start of if you want to have sex a activity that you really ought to do more than that one time in order to get good at it. Practice makes perfect, as in all things. Right. I don't see why this has to be, like, so focused on, oh my god, you lost your virginity. Okay, what about the second time you had sex? <laughs> Again, it's not so much that. It's this whole idea that... He does it the one time, and that means he's good at it. And that supposedly Felurian is impressed and surprised that it's his first time. Okay, yeah, but we've skipped a little bit. I do actually want to talk more about the things that actually interest me. Okay, cool. <laughs> so he somehow, somewhere finds the loot somehow with him. And he picks it up and he brings it close to his chest. I do not want to think about the rest of this. Splinters. Counter argument. 
Have any of your guitars given you any splinters whatsoever, even if you just run your hand over it? Because I don't think you play naked, but I don't. No, I'm just saying that he's already said that his lute has taken a few dings here and there. So has my guitar. It's not full of splinters. Either way. Yes. Where did he keep it? Probably up his butt. <laughs> Aren't you in a mood today? A little bit. Wow. All right, guys, enjoy. <laughs> but he strikes a chord, kind of out of habit, and then he presumably strikes another one, just makes that chord minor. And for those of you that know music, you understand that this is to kind of make it melancholy, to make it sadder sounding. You're pretty much just changing one note and it changes the feel of the chord drastically in some cases. And I think it's important to kind of note that he instinctively starts playing the songs that he constructed in the woods after his parents died. It's another mark of the loss of innocence. It's a different type of loss of innocence and it's sad. It's not cheerful or boastful or these songs of elation. His inner feelings about all of this do not match the words that he is trying to like convey how amazing this experience was for him. He's not actually happy. He's shy and upset and was sexually assaulted. So in a way of catharsis, he starts in on these songs and it makes him feel better. Like the vitriol is leaving his soul, his body, his mind, but he doesn't feel good. He just probably feels very drained. And it's not like Florian feels any better or any less like this experience was gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching. We don't get to focus on that too much, but it seems like she's trying to extend an olive branch, asking if Quoth has a name. Makes me wonder, because Quoth thinks to himself, I'd already given Florian a damn sight more than my name. So in for a penny, in for a pound? It makes me wonder if Florian still has power over his name to compel him to come back, to compel him to do whatever she wants, which again is sexual assault. Well, and there's also this bit where she refers to him as my Kvothe, and that makes Kvothe feel a little uncomfortable, just that sort of possessiveness to it. You know, that just rings a little ooky like there's the sense that she owns him he's definitely heard about the fairy stories saying all about don't give the fae your name he does it anyway and so he comes up with a really convoluted and in my own opinion really stupid plan to start off flattering Florian by singing songs of her and Florian perks up and one of the things that I've noticed is there's a ton of seven word sentences in this. Not many of them good, might I add, but there's a ton of them. And one of them is there was no false modesty in her. And it's interesting. I do have friends that are like this. One of my best friends, in fact, where 
sometimes you have people in your life that you try to do nice things for and their immediate reaction is to not let you, is to say kind of, no, no, uh-uh, I can't accept your kindness, please, no, I don't want you to go above and beyond and do things for me or buy things for me or whatnot. Totally get that impulse. I have that impulse. But my friend, she does not. She will gladly accept any gift, praise, anything that you want to shower on her. Although I assume that this is all she accepts it as long as it's sincere. Because I don't tend to shower her with false anything. <laughs> I don't give her false compliments. I don't give her things and expect a reward or a reciprocation but she will gladly accept it if you want to give her something and it's refreshing it's nice because she's appreciative but she doesn't feel that need to just tell you no 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 you don't have to do that thing you know what i mean yeah let's also be real there's a difference between modesty and false modesty mm -hmm. like false modesty is sort of this oh i'm terrible i'm the worst person that ever walked i'm nothing I don't think that that's modesty. I think that that's unhealthy and disingenuous. Modesty to me is just kind of like shyness almost. Even false modesty I don't think is, oh, I don't deserve this in a negative, terrible to yourself, I'm the most awful human being ever kind of way. It's more of, oh, you didn't have to do that for me. False modesty, I think, can take many forms, but the key element about it is that it is false. There is an element of, while pretending to be selfless, you're actually very much about yourself. That I agree with. And it can take multiple forms. Sometimes it is in ruthless self-deprecation. Sometimes it can take the form of refusing to take a compliment, things like that. Actual modesty or humility, I guess is probably the best way to describe it, is really just accepting that maybe you aren't the best judge of your own character or your own qualities. And so when other people give you an assessment, you don't argue one way or the other. And when they say something kind to you, you say, thank you. That means a lot. Or if it's something negative, you say, okay, I can buy that. Well, as we go along, Kvothe's songs become less and less effusive, less and less complimentary, less and less flattering. They just get clumsier and clumsier. They have the effect that Kvothe is trying to manipulate out of Florian. He's doing this on purpose. He's doing this rather clumsily. Florian is not as big of an idiot as he seems to want to make her out to be. She eventually catches on, but... He is trying to express his lack of experience through his creation of music and song for her. But first, before he can get to that, he has to make her want him to write her a song. So he keeps singing these songs from other people that he knows are not good or that he claims are not good. And borderline, and not so borderline, eventually, insults her with how terrible this crap is. I think this is what rubs me the wrong way. Like, he's basically negging her in a form of emotional manipulation to try and free himself from this situation. Oh boy, do I hate this. So, I know that I'm blunt, I know that I'm 
straightforward. And I know that sometimes I can be rough around the edges when it comes to how I talk directly with people. But this is bullshit. Yeah, there, there's definitely some bullshit there. And a lot of it is poetry, it's songwriting. And I mean, you yourself don't really have a great <laughs> love for that sort of thing in general. I do. I do. I like metaphor. I like literary prose. I really do. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't like these books. I don't like it when you're trying to have an actual conversation and the other person is trying to manipulate you into certain reactions or feelings and is refusing to state what they want. Foth is refusing to state what he needs, what he wants, the outcomes that he's hoping for. He won't just say, Valorian, I need to leave. He instead hurts her feelings, manipulates her, and then proceeds to say, well, let me go ahead and do something nice for you. And then he twists it by purposefully offending her. And not only that, he kind of leaves it hanging. He does the equivalent of going into a guitar shop, picking up a guitar, plugging it into the loudest amp you can find, and then just doing the first three quarters of the riff to smoke on the water. Or just doing a chord progression and leaving off the last resolute note. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was describing. It's just a very specific one. Yeah, don't go to a guitar store and play smoke on the water. Just don't do it. Don't, don't. You're just cliche, cringe. Don't just, no. They really don't care. They just want you to finish the damn riff. <laughs> I don't think I could work at a guitar store, mostly because of things like constant feedback with people trying to retune a baritone ukulele to the ukulele standard, like the other three's standard tuning, and possibly just breaking the strings on the baritone. I just, uh, people who think that they know better than you because who knows why? People like both going in and working with stuff. Yeah, it just, mm -mm. <laughs> Like he starts off with his song, fairly standard poetic and then ends with her skills and love they do suffice and close embrace men find her nice look i'm not going to claim that i am a great songwriter or anything like that or i'm a great poet but even i know that's kind of lame it, like he abandons his rhyming structure not only that but he's doing it just to irk her and she recognizes that she doesn't like this she's not putting up with his bullshit also, even when he seemed to be sincere, like at the beginning of the song, it's not that good, Quoth. It's fine. It gets worse on purpose, but it was only ever fine. And then just the rest of this can be boiled down to Valorian being annoyed and then Quoth feeling a lot of shame over being 16 years old and never having had sex. He doesn't need to be ashamed of that. Like, there's no reason for him to be ashamed of that. First of all, he's 16. A lot of people haven't, I mean, with anyone, I mean, most people, I would probably say, I, I don't know the statistics, but most people, to my knowledge, are probably a little older than 16 when they first have sex. That's okay. Some people never do have sex. 
And that's also okay. You don't need to be ashamed of it. You also should not be ashamed if you do have sex. I would say that there are levels of emotional maturity that mean that you'll either have so much weight put on like your first time or so much weight put on whether or not you're doing that with your girlfriend or boyfriend or they friend, joy friend, partner. Like we put so much weight on that particular activity as a society rather than building up an emotional intimacy. We all just kind of zero in on whether or not you've had that physical intimacy. And for some people, it's just an activity you do together. And for some people, it's something that has a lot of emotional weight. And I would say that when you're younger, it's harder to untangle and it can hurt more to kind of process all of it. So growing up in a fairly conservative religious environment, sex was freighted with marriage. And the whole idea that you might have sex with someone before marriage was something that was just seen as absolutely horrible. And it's not. It isn't. But I remember my first time was I was 21 years old and feeling a lot of conflict over it. I had to figure out, okay, do I hold to this value that all of my family and socialization had drilled into me or do I leave that behind? And that was tough. Like that was a lot, right? Because like I say, I came up in an environment where if you had sex with someone, the expectation was, was that you were married. And maybe you might try and say, okay, we had sex, so now we need to get married because we're this serious. But uh, no, I did not marry my first sexual partner. And I'm glad for that. I wish them no ill will. I know that we weren't necessarily a good couple and neither of us were ready for anything like that. So I would also say that seriously, there is a huge difference between being okay with having sex with someone and wanting to be married to them. Oh yeah. Like wanting to have a physical relationship that includes sex with someone is perfectly fine no matter what your relationship status is. You can be friends with benefits. You can be just casual acquaintances. You can be super serious. You can be married. You can be whatever you want to have been. But other people shouldn't dictate your level of comfort and or consent and or vulnerability towards it. Yeah. It is very difficult to shake off a lot of those things that you're socialized in. Oh, I know. I was convinced that you have to be sexually attracted to people. I didn't realize till I was 30 that asexuality was a thing, that I don't have to be sexually attracted to anyone, and that also romantic relationships do not have to be sexual. And romantic orientation doesn't have to match your sexual orientation. Most people, these things match. Some people, they don't, and that's okay. And Honestly, like, I should not have married my first sexual partner, if you want to call him a partner. The two things did not need to be coupled. You can have fun with people without wanting to be in a serious emotional relationship with them either. And that's okay, too. As long as everybody involved is open and honest and consenting. Yeah. Yep. 
That's literally all that matters. No shame. You know, I like to think that, you know, when my partners and I have split, that at least we've left one another in a better place. And while there might still be pain and suffering because breakups do suck, I at least like to hope that we've both learned something about ourselves. Also, my goal is to not ever hurt people in a way that I wind up being the reason they go to therapy for a bad reason. I mean, I would love to be the reason that people go to therapy as in I tell people, hey, you need to talk to a professional and it will help. I do not want to be <laughs> the one that causes the emotional pain that requires therapy to address. Anyway, let's go back to Kvothe purposefully making his lover angry so that she'll let him go. Yeah, so his gambit is basically he's going to write a bad song and then claim that the reason that it's bad is because he doesn't have anything to compare it with. You're my only partner so far. You took my virginity, which, again, made up concept that doesn't really matter. Anyway, and then again with the Quoth is clearly making this part up. She's shocked that he was a virgin, that he has no experience. And then he says something that I do actually think is smart. He needs more experiences in order to ensure that he's actually understanding whether or not she's good at it, whether or not he's good at it. He needs more experiences so that he can get better at making sure that she feels better. And in turn, that will probably make him feel better. Like that is the one and only time that I can agree with Kvothe's choice of how to address this whole thing. You know, I think that this was a stupid gambit. I think that this is ridiculous and dumb and their interactions would be so much better if they would just talk to one another plainly. I realize she is one of the Fae and that is not how she was socialized. It's kind of like people from Southeastern United States basically taught to obfuscate any of their true feelings if they are so-called negative feelings. Blech. I mean, generally speaking, if we, if we think about how the Fae are typically portrayed, their entire socialization consists almost exclusively of trickery. They might tell you things that are strictly speaking true, but maybe not in the way you believe it. I do have one part that is very funny. Florian is, again, incredulous regarding the validity of Quoth's statements. And she's like, well, then tell me how you got so good at it. Okay. And he just replies, well, I read about things in books. Oh, boy. And her response is, books? Books? You compare me with books? Yeah. Leaves something to be desired, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. She's unhappy and going a little manic. So, dear listeners, I'm just going to give you a little bit of solid romantic slash sexual advice. If you're with a partner and they ask where you learned your technique. Never, ever tell them that you picked it up from this podcast. <laughs> That's not where I thought you were going with this, but you're right. You shouldn't. <laughs> Especially not this podcast. Nope. Mm -mm. Well, ultimately, it seems like 
Valorian has kind of acquiesced a little bit. She's like, well, if I let you go, will you come back? Show me what you've learned. And Quoth is just dumbfounded by the idea that she'd want him to come back. But, I mean, he's not going to say no, right? Yeah. And then we end the chapter with a little bit of brown chicken, brown cow. And, again, let's talk about the mechanics. He's got his loot with him. Well, he's got to set it aside. Make sure he doesn't crush it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say, how big is this bed? We've got a king-size bed. I would never put my guitar down on it and then proceed to have fun. I don't presume that the loot is still on the bed or in the cushions. It's probably off to the side. Either way, I seriously doubt that any of this actually took place. I think this is the sort of thing that one might say to burnish one's reputation. I think you're thinking about this entirely too much and too hard. Well, I can tell you this. I've thought about it more than Pat Rothfuss has. You don't know that. He might have thought about this a lot after he published the book. Yeah, that's true. I think he came in for some stick over this. But oh well. Let's not spend too much time mocking this because we still got to keep our powder dry for man mothers. And I don't want people to come away with the idea that we hate this book. This part is cringy. This part is very cringy. This part, I think, if it was to be written over again, might be different. Quite probably. Yeah. I mean, who knows? But I think this is one of the parts of the book that make a lot of people criticize Pat's ability to write women characters. And if this is your sample size, certainly it's fair. Again, though... I'm going to point out that this is all from Quoth's perspective. And Quoth is a 16-year-old boy. And in that case, I actually think that this is a pretty accurate way of portraying how a 16-year-old boy might talk about these situations. Or someone whose recollection is that of a 16-year-old boy. That's fair. So, that brings us to the Fernimos of the week. Nope. It's my turn this week, and trick question, there are none, for the reasons that we've all been over. Quoth comes up with a dumb plan, and somehow Felurian falls for it, and then compounds things by making Quoth promise to come back afterwards. We don't need to belabor it. So let's move on to something more interesting, which is our thing of the week. It's your turn this week. What do you got? There is another book series that I actually think you all would like. It is the Silo series by Hugh Howey, which consists of wool, shift, and dust. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is that there is also now a show on Apple TV Plus based on the series. It's called Silo. And if you're a fan of kind of the post-apocalyptic sci-fi science fantasy genre, this is right up there i think with like i don't know what what other things would you compare it with it has strong fallout vibes yeah it definitely has fallout vibes it definitely has some of these mysteries built into it that compel the narrative pretty well it has a a good lost quality it has kind of that same conspiracies and mysteries and 
bigger things messing with the smaller things kind of vibe. Like an overarching, almost just not to spoil it too much, there is a little bit of a almost Truman Show-esque, very little quality to the book's narrative, which you don't even get too much of until you hit the second book. And I think to say too much would be to spoil the mysteries and the sense of what the fork is going on. But the elevator pitch of this is that we've got around 5,000 people living in a silo that is buried under the earth. And they don't know why they all are forced to live in this silo, but they do know that to go outside is certain death. And the silo is at least 125 years old. They know that much. They have to maintain the space that supports life. They need to keep order so as to keep a mass panic from happening and to keep the citizens of the silo safe and happy, or at least safe and content. They don't know what their purpose is, overarching, but life goes on. There are some built-in mechanisms that keep everyone in line, whether by fear or ignorance. And you get introduced to somebody who is very curious about the why around all of this. And that's who you follow through most of the story. And I think that the TV show has done a pretty good job so far. It's only had three episodes, but it's done a pretty good job so far of staying true to the feel of the books, if not to every rote bit. Like, it's not exactly mirroring the books, not exact coming from that, but plot points are hitting in the way that I want them to. And the kind of creepy, oppressive feel is there. I've been enjoying it so far. I haven't read the books as extensively as you have. By that, I think I maybe gave you the comic of Wool. I think I made it through about half of it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like the books. I have had to restart them. And I had to listen to the second and third one instead of read them. Because I kind of got stuck in a place where I, I couldn't just compel myself forward but I was curious always about the mysteries but maybe not compelled by the writing as much which isn't fair to say because like everybody likes a different style of writing or reading or whatever and I have a hard time keeping focus on a lot of things that I am very interested in keeping focus on so I think that listening to it was probably the best option for me and I think that I will continue on with the show because I think it's compelling and good and I like the people that are in it. Yep. So what do you think of the show? So from my perspective, again, I'm not thinking of it as an adaptation, just looking at it as a work of televised science fiction. I'd say one, it's excellently cast. You know, all of the actors do a really good job. I'd say it's generally well-written, though I will say that I do think that the protagonist suffers from main character syndrome. One thing that I will say is that oftentimes, as I've gotten older, my sympathy towards young protagonists has dwindled and generally ends up lying instead with reasonable authority figures who have to deal with their antics. <laughs> like, yes, yes, we, we get your point. You're probably right. Have you considered how you're actually going to do this and what it's going to actually cost? Oh, you haven't. Oh, okay. Well, let me 
Let me clue you in. Now we'll have to figure out how to do this. I, I see where you're coming from, though Juliet is roughly our age. Yeah, I think she's coded a bit younger, though, in terms of her impulsiveness and the way that she carries herself with her compatriots. She's coded as sort of the young genius type, which, you know, I've identified with that in the past. And as I've gotten older, I've realized just how insufferable I was to work with. Right. But I do think that I still enjoy the no one's going to listen to me, so I have to go do it on my own type of protagonist, especially if they do their best to keep a community that has got their back where they're not a lone wolf. When it's rooted in the greater good and not in I was right. I agree with you. For me, the books definitely have the for the greater good and not the just I was right. Who knows what the TV show will be. Yeah. So far, I've enjoyed it. I think it's worth a watch. That brings us to the interesting fact. First time in a while. Right. This one comes courtesy of one of our members on Discord. Yep. This is our friend Mel, and she has provided us with the following. So we often use the term hurt to describe both physical and emotional states, though most of us treat emotional pain as something of an abstraction. However, it may be more literal than previously thought. So in a 2010 paper published in Psychological Science, researchers at the University of Kentucky found that acetaminophen, which is a physical pain suppressant that acts through central rather than peripheral neural mechanisms, may also reduce behavioral and neural responses to social rejection. It's paracetamol in the UK and I think probably greater Europe. Yeah. Tylenol is the most common over-the-counter brand name that you'll see in the U.S. So this also seems to corroborate a limited exploratory study that was published in 2016 in Social Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience that indicates that regular use of acetaminophen can reduce people's empathetic response to other people's pain. That said, while the paper's publication triggered a wave of sensationalist news stories about how Tylenol changes your personality, a more nuanced read of the study finds that much of that is either an exaggeration or ignoring the methodological limits of the study. There are some pretty severe ones on here. So they did find that acetaminophen reduced empathy for pain, but this was, again, a very small study with a small sample size. In two separate experiments, one with 80 participants and one with 114, the researchers asked people to rate other people's pain after finding out about it in different ways, such as through stories, spoken stories, third-hand accounts, things like that. I assume written stories or... Written, oral, or visual. The subjects who had been given acetaminophen rated those experiences as less painful than those who had been given a placebo, which seems to support the theory of empathy that our ability to experience pain affects how we empathize with other people. So people who experience more pain, according to this simulation theory of empathy, are also going to be more empathetic towards that of others. So it's a very dramatic finding, certainly. But again, it was a small sample size, and pretty much everyone involved was also a psychology student. I've known enough psychology students to know that they're all a little weird. So the original thing that we were alerted to, though, was talking about how 
painkillers like acetaminophen can reduce your emotional pain. Is that something that you found out more about? Yeah, so I did some reading on that. And so the whole idea here is that when you're taking acetaminophen, it is actually affecting a single nerve cluster. And that seems to affect both your physical and your emotional pain. So it could theoretically help with people who are worried about social rejection or social anxiety. And then it also helps with things like if you've had breakups or are grieving or is that accurate or? It could. I don't know that anyone would go so far as to prescribe it. Again, the findings on this sort of thing are difficult to figure out because so much of it relies on subjective reporting of internal experiences. Self-reporting tends to be exceedingly biased. Yeah. I mean, they did do some fMRI imaging um, that could show how the brain was reacting in response to these things. But even then, translating an fMRI image into a subjective experience is a tricky thing to do just because you have to account for differing brain chemistry to start with in people. And you'd need a pretty large sample size to draw any definitive conclusions. And I think at this point, you could maybe make a case for correlation, if not causation. Gotcha. So it was pretty interesting to me. So with that, let's go ahead and move into seven words. You have the books this time. And like I said earlier, there are so many seven word sentences or fragments of sentences in this. The odds are good, but the goods are odd. I don't like most of them. And I think like the one I like the most, I think we've said before because this happens to show up a few times and that's half a loaf is better than none. And I mean, most of this is cringy, lovey stuff. Some of this is boastful. Like I don't mind being called a liar because Quoth acknowledges that he is one. And then he also invalidates that by saying, I just don't like being called a liar when I'm telling the perfect truth. <laughs> I, I don't like most of my options. So which do you hate the least? Uh, books? Books? You compare me with books? That's what it is. Because that's literally the only part of this that really made me laugh. A genuine happy laughter? Rather than just that kind of embarrassed for the characters kind of laughter. Fair. This is a rather cringy little chapter. Um, that's all I got. That's fair. <laughs> like I say, the odds were good, but the goods were odd. Tis true. What are your seven words from life? So lately I've been on a bit of a typo negative kick. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of their stuff on vinyl. Just recently I ended up picking up their final album, Dead Again, and it features the following chorus line. Halloween in heaven, it's Christmas in hell, l l l And it's a legit banger. It's been stuck in my head for a while here. So now it's stuck in your head. You're welcome. It would only be stuck in my head if I knew the tune. Now I don't think I'm going to seek it out. That's fine. I can show it to you. 
but that doesn't mean that I have to listen to it. That's true. But for those of my friends who might like to listen to some goth metal, this is a good one. I gotcha. All right. So there is something else that we probably should talk a little bit about before we completely go. Um, mostly, I didn't want to bring it up too early because I didn't want to focus on it for very much of the podcast because that's not what this is about. But I would feel awful if I didn't at least mention it. So as many of you are probably aware, especially if you've been listening for a while, we're cat lovers. And our family for the last few years has consisted of the two of us and our two cats, Sokka and Leela. And as we've said a few times, I think recently, Leela's been sick for a while. She's had a gastrointestinal issue for a few years. She's been on a steroid. She had to be forced to have an anti-nausea pill pretty much every other day and B12 supplements a lot. We tried not to let it stop us from having our own life, but a lot of our time was kind of centered around her care. And then this past weekend, we had your family out. Your parents came out and spent time with us. And, you know, she got to cuddle up on them and she knows them. But about three days into the visit, she stopped eating and she's already so skinny. And it's been a struggle to get her to eat and her liver just couldn't handle not eating. We tried our best, but we had to make the decision to stop her from being in pain. And last Wednesday, as of this recording, so the 10th of May, she was telling us very loudly that she couldn't keep going. And we did the kindest thing we could for her. So we just wanted to let everyone know that our little podcast isn't with us any longer. Our other kitty Sokka was never Lilo's favorite creature, to say the least. And so he's actually doing pretty well. He's a little more needy right now. He's soaking up all the affection he can. I still call him an asshole a lot because he ate that string a few weeks back and we knew that Lilo was very sick and I didn't want to be completely catless. And so we every once in a while look at him and go, this is why you don't eat string. But we know that like if you followed us on our Instagram or I'm pretty sure on Facebook, there's probably a couple of pictures of her that our little tabby, I mean, she tried her best. She gave us six more months than we thought we had with her. But, you know, poor little thing just couldn't keep going. Yeah. Um, this past week, you know, we've been grieving and trying to be kind to ourselves and remind ourselves that we made the right decision. Some days it's harder than others. I guess in this time, you know, we'd just like to remind people to enjoy the time they have with their family members, whether furry or otherwise, and remember to show them that you love them. Like all that we can say is just be kind. 
on her last day, she got to have her absolute favorite treat, which she would still eat, which is good, which is a freeze-dried monkfish treat that made her go absolutely crazy. But she couldn't have normally because it would upset her tummy because everything upset her tummy. But she got to have as many of those things as she wanted. And we sent her off wrapped up in a blanket and with us petting her. And I think she knows that she was loved. I think so. I think that was something that she never doubted. Throughout all of it, she was always glad to have our presence. Even when she didn't like us showing affection to other humans or one <laughs> another. She was always happy to get pets and scritches. As long as no one was singing. She hated singing. She hated human affection. She hated music, but she loved us. And I think it made her at peace to know that we were with her. And now back to the regularly scheduled. Thank you very much for listening. I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. And we need to figure out what we're going to cover next week. And we're going to keep up with the small chapters, I think, because we are dealing with our own lives and our own emotional stuff. So next time is probably also going to be just one chapter. Behind the scenes for everyone who's still listening, we tend to decide what our next episode will be at the time when we say, Thank you for listening to Tales from the Waste Out. <laughs> and then I edit out us discussing how we're going to handle next week and what our lens is. <laughs> so, yay. And now is the time that we say... Join us next time on Tales from the Waystones. We cover chapter 99 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of teenage cringe. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get things like Sandman episodes and other interestingly fun things. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. And also another toast to our dearly loved, dearly departed, little Miss Leela Boo. To Leela. To Leela. Ding. Ding. Oh, <laughs> did you see the little sea monsters gif that I did? I did. Yeah. That's cute. Like, Suro is great. Absolutely great. But I think Suro of the Seas is a very, very good game with a completely different feel, while also still maintaining the same feel, which is interesting. It's an evolution. It's yeah. a good evolution. Agreed. Like, sometimes people iterate on things that don't need to be iterated on, and... This, they've managed to make two distinct games that are both very good in their own right without stomping on one another. 
Yeah, it's very obvious that they share the same DNA. It's just I think that one really carries the possibilities of that game mechanic to a greater extent, and I think it makes an overall better experience. I'm not going to say I think either one of them is better or worse. They're different and fulfill different roles. Okay, that's fair. I just like Zero of the Seas better myself.